Kara and I, my wife Kara and I, really enjoy watching the TV program Amazing Race. Maybe it's because we lived overseas and we're interested in other countries. We're interested also in the stress that those teams come under as they try to solve problems and move on to the next leg. In a recent episode, they were in Cologne, Germany, and they were at a rail bridge called Lovelock Bridge. Thousands and thousands and thousands of locks on a fence, just solid locks. And the puzzle was to find a lock, a new, another lock, put there by the people who run in the program. And it had a little ribbon on it, which had the colors of Amazing Race on it, but it, but it was for sure hidden in plain sight. And that's the name of our series, isn't it? Hidden in Plain Sight. We've been going back to those Old Testament stories and scriptures to find glimpses of Jesus. We learn, first of all, from David Henniger about the victorious conqueror from the seed promise of Genesis 3, verse 15. And then we heard from Bill about the rock of the water of salvation in the desert, as 1 Corinthians 10 talks about. And then we saw from Princeton that bronze snake which was raised in the wilderness to cure those who looked upon it that had been bitten by the poison snakes. And that likened to Jesus being raised up on Calvary unto whom we can look as we did today for our salvation. And then we heard about the Day of Atonement from Matt. The Day of Atonement, the ultimate sacrifice and all that that day represented in Jesus Christ. And then we heard from Zane. We heard about the Paschal Lamb at the Passover feast. And Jesus is, is said to be that Paschal Lamb in 1 Corinthians 5. Now I left Corey out because Corey, Corey talked to us from Isaiah 53. And that was later on than all these others. I don't know how those people missed Isaiah 53. They knew that was about the Messiah. They knew that was the suffering servant. They should have attached that to Jesus rather easily, but they didn't. I guess it too was hidden in plain sight. Well, backing up a little bit in Israelite time, there was David the king. And David was the second king of Israel. And there was a special promise made to him and to his descendants in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. That is a new promise. It would be hidden in plain sight for a while. But that everyone that would come as a king would come from the lineage of David. Was supposed to. And ultimately there would be one who would sit on the throne forever. And of course that's King Jesus to come. Now, during the time of David, as you know, they were putting together that songbook, the Psalms. And it, like our songbook, has these different themes. They might have referred to their history, how God did deliver them through the history. They might have talked about hope. They might have talked about suffering. They might have talked about their king, and they did. 
because some of the Psalms really zero in. They're called the Royal Psalms. And and they talk about that covenant that God made with David and how special David was and how important it was for God to be with the lineage of David as they sat on that throne. David's throne. The covenant with David that there would be one sit on his throne. But as openly as that was declared, they don't seem to get it. Now, there is a twist. There's a twist in the Psalms, not just talking about the Messiah as king. There's a twist related to the kingship that we'll discover a little bit later. I'm going to take us to two Psalms. Psalm 2, and you can be turning to that. We're going to look right at the text. And then we'll look at Psalm 110. These two Psalms, I'm persuaded, are holy and completely talking about the Messiah to come. You know, you have some Psalms or some prophecies in the Old Testament that that maybe they talk about something in the Old Testament, but they foreshadow something, a dual fulfillment in Jesus or the church. I don't think these Psalms are that way. I don't know how they saw them. I don't know if they were told that, that these two refer completely and solely to the Christ to come, the anointed one, the Messiah. But I think they do. So, I know these are messianic because of the way the New Testament treats them. The New Testament will lift several texts, several verses out of these two Psalms and say this is fulfilled in Jesus, King Jesus, and of course that twist that I'll talk about in a little bit. Turn to Psalm 2 if you haven't already, and I want you to hear, I want you to hear the, the drama in this Psalm as I read it. It is, it is the drama between those who would say, I want no King Jesus in my life, and God the Father and His Son as they are asserting their power and their authority. We know who's going to win that battle. But listen to the drama in Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. You hear the wrangling, you hear the rumbling of those, of those leaders who said, we want no part of God's authority. We do not want to submit. We don't want to do his will. We don't want to do his intentions. We don't want to do what he wants us to do. We are the power. Yes, we are the ones who rule. And we'll do whatever we want, whenever we want, to whomever we want. And we answer to no one but ourselves and our own desires. And they say to the king, break our chains. We don't want to serve you anymore. These verses are actually quoted in a prayer in Acts chapter 4. So let me take you forward to a fulfillment so we know this is messianic. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been preaching about the resurrected Jesus. And they get in trouble with the Jewish leaders, as you know, in those early days. They were persecuted. But they are, after they're threatened, they go back to find the saints praying. And the saints are praying about this incident, that Peter and John have been released. And they quote This psalm, they say this psalm is being fulfilled 
in our very midst. They say these people who are referred to in Psalm 2 are actually part of our day. When Jesus was rejected and persecuted and ultimately killed, it was, it was a fulfillment of these verses. And oh, by the way, the body of Jesus, the church, is still being treated by, that, by those people that way. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verse 27 in their prayer. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. So they know that these rebellious rulers in Psalm 2 are actually Herod, Pilate, and the Gentiles, the Romans, and the Jewish leaders. They are the ones who said, we want nothing to do with Jesus' rule. We want nothing to do with God the Father's rule. We will rebel. We'll do our own thing. Yet, yet Jesus said, even the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church that I put in place. These rulers will not make it. Their rulership, this is my church. And so, back to Psalm 2 for a minute. As God thinks about this, as the Father thinks about this, listen to his response in verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Ha! Huh. you got to be kidding me. I think that's the way Jesus or God said it. That's, what are they thinking? They think they can rebel against me? They think they can take away my authority? Who do they think they are? He laughs. What else does he do? The Lord scoffs at them. And after, you know, it's almost like after the Lord gets over, <laughs> that's silly. That can't be right. Look at what he says in verse 5. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. They're not going to get away with it. They're not going to get away with it. The, anger's, the anger of the Lord is riled up. And what he will do will not be rhetoric. His response will not be a slap on the wrist. The judgment against such impertinence will not be small. The one they ultimately are coming up against, the Father says, is the Son. Look what he says in verse 6. After he terrifies them in his wrath, he says, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. <coughs> Zion. Jerusalem, Zion, the Temple Mount, Zion, the place where David rules. Who rules you? It will be my son, the Father says. They will have to put up with the son. Now, I know that's Jesus because in Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching to the people in Antioch or Pisidia. He's trying to persuade them of the Christ. They would not heard it before, that he was raised from the dead. And notice what he says, as I quote this, from Acts 13, verse 32 and 33. He says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. 
Today I have become your father. Now come back to Psalm 2 for just a minute because look at verse 7. That's where that verse comes from. It's, it's like the son begins to speak in verse 7. After the father has said what he's going to say, the son says, he opens it up and he says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, the father said to me, the son, Jesus says, the father said, you're my son. Today I've become your father. The father said that to the son. And that's not talking about his birth. That's talking about when he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God. That's what Paul says in Acts 13. That when he set him down on the right side after he descended to heaven, that's when he said, you will become the king. You will inherit the earth. Listen to him in verse 8. Ask of me, the father says of the son, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll rule them with an iron scepter. You'll dash them in pieces like a piece of brittle pottery. I added the word brittle there. Verse 9 is interesting because the writer of Revelation quotes this several times. The writer John of the book of Revelation is dealing with the Christians in the first century who are getting beat to a pulp by the Roman Empire and those who would persecute the church. And, and maybe they're wondering, where, where's God? I thought Jesus was on the throne. And the writer quotes this several times to remind them, Rome may be thinking they are in charge and they're in power, but they are not. Jesus on his throne will eventually take his iron scepter and break Rome like a piece of brittle pottery. Anybody been to Rome? Anybody been to other parts of the old, the old, old Roman Empire? They're just ruins. Where are they? And who's still on his throne? At the right hand of God. It is the Lord Jesus. So he smashes them. And, and now that he said that, you would think that an invitation would be offered, and that's exactly what happens in verses 10 through 12. Therefore, because of what I just said, you kings, be warned. You kings that said you wanted nothing to do with the rulership of God or Jesus, you better be wise. You be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. But here's the other side of that. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So verses 10 through 12 are the exhortation. You better get in line. You better stop your rebellion. You better change your, your ways, your tune. Ever said that to your children? You better change your tune. I, heard, I can hear that my dad saying that right now. I tried to change my tune. Sometimes I didn't, and I got the punishment for it. But on the other side... To those Christians, he says, to those of us who willingly and adoringly submitted to God when we became a Christian, to those of us who took on not only the salvation of Christ, but the kingship of Christ, that he rules in our hearts, those of us, he says, there's refuge in that kingship for you. There's not a warning. 
there's refuge. Charles, you said there was a twist. Yeah, there's a twist. But we find it over in chapter 110. So turn over to Psalm 110. I know you've heard verse 1. You've probably heard verse 4. Those are the two main verses. They're quoted often in the, in the New Testament. In fact, I think if I numbered them, I think this is right. Verse 1 of Psalm 110 and verse 4 are the most quoted verses from the Old Testament in the New. Might be wrong on that, but I think that's right. So here, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. Did you notice the difference in Lord there? Jehovah said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, now, how would I know that's about Jesus? The first sermon off the lips of Peter on the day of Pentecost. One of the main things he's trying to prove is that Jesus is raised from the dead. Because if he's raised from the dead, then sure enough, he can take away our sins. He gets to the end of his sermon and he quotes this verse. And he says, this is, this is a, an Old Testament prophecy of God the Father making Jesus Lord and Christ. This is the point. When he's raised from the dead and ascends to heaven and sits down the right hand of God, the raised Jesus that I've been proving various ways by this sermon, that's the Jesus that sits on the right hand of God that is now ruling. He is now the Father saying to the Son, you rule until I put all things under your feet. wonder when that would be. Well, Paul really tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He even uses the last part, and he will put all things under his feet. And he, so he's referring back to Psalm 2, and he says, that happens when the last enemy of King Jesus is conquered. And that chapter is about the resurrection and the resurrection body. That's what he's talking about. The last enemy, he says, is death. So when death is conquered, when Jesus returns, when death is conquered, when we go to be with him, that's when the rulership of Jesus is completed. Not till, not till then. Ah, uh, but I haven't finished. Where's that twist? Keep reading, Charles. Verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty from the wound of the dawn. You will receive the dew of your youth. I don't usually do this, but skip verse 4. Are you skipping verse 4? Okay, verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from the brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. All of those verses sound a whole lot like what we talked about in Psalm 2, don't they? The all authority of King Jesus. But then right there in the middle of that, that kingship of Jesus is verse 4, isn't it? Here's the twist. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's what Sam prayed about this morning. 
he could pray that way because of this verse and others. Jesus wasn't just a king. He was a priest. He was a high priest like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was that Old Testament character whose father and mother are not mentioned. He had a father and mother, but they weren't mentioned. And so literally, it looks like his priesthood was eternal. And that's the way the Hebrew writer uses the language. He makes Jesus' high priesthood eternal by saying it's like Melchizedek. King and priest. Uh-uh, uh-uh, no, uh, no, not in the Jewish system. The kingship came from the tribe of Judah. The priesthood came from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. They don't come together. That's not, that's not the way it's supposed to happen. But it's right there in the text. It was a prophecy of the Messiah. I think they missed it. Later, the prophet Zechariah puts these two together too. I guess they missed that one too. Well, who studies the book of Zechariah anyway? It's a great book though. I get to teach it. I know that. But these two come together. That combination, or even the meaning of the parts of it, king and high priest as it is, might well have been hidden in the time of the Psalms. I'm not sure why they didn't see it, but it certainly seems to have been hidden in the time of Jesus. Yeah, they had a king idea, but what was it? Well, what was their idea of a Messiah? Oh, well, some say he's going to be a, a Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets reincarnated. Eh, no. Well, some would have thought, well, he's going to be a nationalistic, militaristic re- leader to throw off the Roman oppression and set up the Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem again or something like that. And when Jesus didn't fit that mold, they rejected him and killed him. But even in the Gospels, do. I, I, I don't ever hear them talking about, oh, the Messiah, he's going to have this priesthood aspect to him. I don't ever hear that. Certainly not the two together. It took the New Testament writers that we read about after the Gospels to tell us more about this, that this is about King Jesus and high priesthood Jesus. Go back to the king for just a minute. Isn't it ironic That Pilate, who said to Jesus, I have authority over you to do with you what, what, you know, who are you? Talk to me. I have authority. And Jesus said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above, John 19, 11. He doesn't know. He thinks he does. So he puts the placard up there over Jesus' cross. King of the Jews. Take it down. No, he's... Or change it. He, he, the Jews wanted, he said, he claimed to be. No. In jest or just in your face, Pilate said, I said it that way and I'm going to leave it that way. Isn't it ironic? Isn't it ironic that Pilate said the truth or at least prophesied the truth of what he would be? King of kings and Lord of lords. What about you and me? What does this have to do with us? When Paul, in the book of Ephesians, wrote that he is head over everything for the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. He's going to put everything under his feet. He's going to submit everything to him. 
He's going to put everything under his feet for the church. That's for you and me. (coughs) Head, sounds like king of kings to me. There is no entity. There is no government. There is no ruler. There is no authority in any place on the face of the earth. Whether they want to be or not, whether they think they are or not, they are under the authority of Jesus. Not one of them is not. You're supposed to use two knots in a sentence like that. But not only is he head over everything for the church so that, so that Christ can work his will, which is to try to save mankind. Doesn't look like it sometimes, but that's what's going on. Not only that, but he's head of the church. Colossians 1.18 So no man or woman tells the church what to do. Jesus exclusively rules. He is the perfect sovereign over the church to accomplish his purposes through the church. You and I must take heart, dear Christian. In a world filled with events that are hurtful, that strive against us, that that would like to dismiss us or destroy us, seemingly, or lots of things that seem out of control by rulers of the earth, we, you and I, Christians, must still choose to trust. Just like those Christians in the first century who were getting beaten up, we must still trust that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will in time... Do what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Whether it's here or whether it's there, you know the promise. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, or King of kings, to the glory of God the Father. There is no situation, there is no power, there is no enemy or person who can take away my heavenly standing or can take away your citizenship. There is no successful rebellion against God and Jesus. There is no king, there is no political party, there is no prime minister, there is no dictator, there is no narcissist with power that can take away our citizenship or the kingship of Jesus in heaven. Now that same Messiah is the one that allowed us to go into the heavenly throne room with our prayers today because he's that high priest. Hebrews makes that so clear, particularly in, well, several things, several chapters in the book, but let me just give you a couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. But I love Hebrews 4, and I know you know what it says. Listen to it again. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who's been tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. Here it comes. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In another text, he says, He ever, he eternally intercedes for us. The high priest who took his blood into the heavenly heavens for us, that we can approach him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. No longer hidden, but rather in plain sight. To conclude our lesson today, I've got to go back to Psalm 2, to those last few verses. They're the invitation. They're the exhortation. He said to those who said, I want nothing to do with the rulership of Jesus. And there might be some of those in this audience, not kings, but those who have resisted his rulership. Hear the sober warning from the king of kings. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Be warned. Don't resist. There will come a time when his just judgment will be upon you if you do not choose to be on his side. And you might say, well, well, I'm not resisting him per se. I think he would say, if you're not for me, You are against me. And so maybe like was being said to these rulers, while there is still time, while there is still time, give in to the king of kings. He wants to rule within you. He said his kingdom was within us, in our midst, within us. It's not, my kingdom's not of this world. It's it's one where I want to rule in your hearts. So let me in. But now you need to understand, you cannot serve God in anything else. He has to be sole ruler of your life, giving your life to him, being immersed into Christ, the old man dying, the resistor dying, raised to be a new creature, a servant, a willing servant of Jesus Christ. Please, please do not resist his pleading another day. But for the most of us, in that last verse comforting? In him you find refuge, hope, joy, peace, refuge. If you're having trouble with that, Christian, because of world events or things in your, your present life that are affecting you individually, take courage, take hope, because there's refuge in Jesus. Would you please respond to that message this morning while we stand and while we sing?